Welcome. So this will be the first episode of a true crime series that we're going to do. Why am I doing true crime? I've always fancied myself to do true crime. It's something I'm very interested in and I like looking into, which may sound weird, but that's that's one of my hobbies. And we're going to start off with, it's, a, it's an unsolved case. It's very interesting. It's got a lot of theories around it. Um, nobody's... There's some, there are some theories, but they're all built on very circumstantial evidence. So, yeah, I hope you enjoy it. Um, it is quite a short one to start us off. So this case takes place in Philadelphia, 1957. It's very weird, it's confusing. As I said, I've been looking into this for a couple of years now. Those who watch BuzzFeed Unsolved may know about this, but this is the mystery of the boy in the box, also known as America's Unknown Child. Um, just a heads up for anybody, there are some mentions of child abuse and sexual abuse within this story, so if those are upsetting to you, uh, probably best not to listen to this. But we're going to jump right in. So on February 25th, 1957, a young boy was found dead in a cardboard box in a woodland area off the Susquehanna Road. He was discovered by a college student who had been checking to make sure a rabbit hadn't been caught in an animal trap. The student then contacted the police the next day and the case was opened on February 26th. To this day, police don't know who he is, how he died or who may have abandoned him. So the boy was naked and wrapped in a blanket inside the box. The box was for a bassinet sold by J.C. Penney. Those who don't know what a bassinet is, it's kind of like a cot. His hair was cropped and clumps of it were around the box, leading police to believe it had been done after his death. He was severely malnourished and had scars on his ankle, groin and chin. A man's blue corduroy cap, a child's scarf and a man's white handkerchief with the letter G in the corner were found near the scene. However, these clues led nowhere. So whether or not this has something to do with the boy, we don't know. So police took fingerprints from the boy and made flyers depicting his likeness, which were distributed by the Philadelphia Inquirer. The case attracted mass media attention in Philadelphia and the Delaware Valley. A post-mortem photograph was also issued to the public, but none of these efforts led anywhere. That's all we have about the key components of the investigation. But yeah, so we're going to get into some theories now. So there have been two main theories in the case that have been investigated the most by police. I find both of these very convincing, but you'll see why the investigations into these two stories were closed. So the first theory is that the boy came from a foster home which was located one and a half miles from the crime scene. So Remington Bristow, who worked for the medical examiner's office and pursued this case until he died in 1993, uh, he received a tip from a psychic in 1960 who told him to look for a house that matched the description of this foster home that was very nearby. Um, so Bristow brought the psychic in and told the psychic to take him to the house and the psychic led him directly to this foster home. So Bristow decided to investigate. Uh, inside the house he found a bassinet that was similar to the one that came from the box 
and there were also blankets similar to the one the boy was wrapped in at this foster home. He believed that the boy belonged to the stepdaughter of the man who ran the foster home. So their theory goes that this woman had given birth to this boy out of wedlock and had abandoned him so she would not be exposed as an unwed mother. Bristow believed that if this was the case, that the boy's death was a complete accident and they had simply gotten rid of the body to try and cover up an unfortunate accident and also cover up his existence as well. So after Bristow died, this lead you can call it that, was followed up by Police Lieutenant Tom Augustine in 1998 when he interviewed the foster father and the stepdaughter, but we don't know what was said in these interviews. And then due to it all being circumstantial evidence, this investigation was eventually closed by Augustine. So I do think that that is definitely a possibility. You know, that would be why they didn't come forward in any way. One, to protect her reputation and two, to prevent them from going to prison. But yeah, um, I think the second theory, this is a lot more convincing to me. So let's, let's get into it. So the second theory covers a woman known as Martha, or she may be known as M, just the letter M in some accounts. So this woman came forward in February 2002, but police were unsure whether to believe her because she had a history of mental illness. So she gave an interview and this is what she said. So Martha claimed that her abusive mother had bought the boy um, from his birth parents in 1954. She claimed the boy's name was Jonathan. Unfortunately, the boy suffered from extreme physical and sexual abuse at the hands of this woman. Uh, Martha recounted one evening where the boy was very sick after eating his dinner, um, which was baked beans and his head was slammed against the floor until he was semi-conscious. He was then given a bath where he died. Now this is what kind of convinces me because this matched the coroner's findings of baked beans in the boy's stomach and water wrinkled fingers. So in my head this definitely is starting to add up and be the best possible story. So Martha then claims that her mother chopped off the boy's long hair to try and, and conceal his identity. She said that the boy was known for having long hair and as she said most people thought he looked like a girl because of his long hair. So she chopped off the long hair after the death which may account for the choppy cut and then forced Martha to help her cover up the death. So Martha says that they drove to the woodland area off of Susquehanna Road where they started unloading his body from the boot and a man pulled over and offered to help. Martha was instructed to stand in front of the car licence plate while her mother convinced the man that they were fine until he eventually drove off. This is another bit that is quite convincing to me because in 1957 a male witness had come forward he said that the body had been placed in a box that was already in the wood. That's the only thing we know about that witness statement though because it's completely confidential. If this was the same man, then Martha's story does start to make sense. However, here's the kicker. Martha's neighbours from 1957 have said that there had never been a young boy living in her house at the time that she gave 
and they all dismissed her claims as ridiculous. This bit is like whether the neighbours were asked to help cover it up or not, I don't know. Or Martha's story is completely false. But the fact that she knows details that the coroner found that weren't released to the public is quite interesting and quite telling of her story, I feel. This investigation was also closed. So yeah, there's a couple more theories. So Frank Bender, and this could explain why Martha's neighbours say that there had never been a young boy living in her house. Frank Bender, who is a forensic artist, has theorised that the victim was raised as a girl because the body had, well, the, one, the strange haircut, to like chop it all off, uh, the body also had styled eyebrows and strands of hair found on on it, which kind of reflects this theory. So if the victim had been raised as a girl, we can kind of see where Martha's neighbours were saying that there was no young boy, because they specified boy in the research that I've done, not child. So, yeah, who knows. Last theory is involving two writers called... Jim Hoffman and Louis Romano. Uh, these writers did not know each other and came to these theories separately before joining together. So both Hoffman and Romano have both said that they have found the potential identity of the boy in Memphis, Tennessee and requested that a DNA test be compared to a family there. So this was originally thought up by a man from Philadelphia who contacted Hoffman, who agreed with this theory. And Hoffman presented this theory with the unnamed man to the Philadelphia Police Department in 2013. Romano, who had also been joint, like following this lead on his own time, found out about the pair and joined them and gathered a DNA sample from the potential family in 2014 and sent it to the police in Philadelphia. However, Homicide Sergeant Bob Cormier confirmed that there was no link between the boy and the Memphis family in 2017, which is quite disappointing. So they almost had something, but it turned out to be false, unfortunately. Now, I'm not the only one that is very interested in this case. Uh, many people have created amateur forums and databases to try and figure out the boy's identity over the years. Uh, in 2016, the boy was added to the database for the National Centre for Missing and Exploited Children. So the case is still open, it's just cold, and they are still trying to figure out who he is, who he belonged to. So in 2018, Barbara Ray Venter, who was the genetic genealogist who identified the Golden State Killer, uh, she said that she was using the same DNA profiling technique to try and identify the boy. So she's using sample taken in 1998 from the boy's body. So the boy was originally buried in a potter's field in 1957 but he was exhumed for DNA extraction in 1998. Um, he was then reburied in Ivy Hill Cemetery in Cedarbrook, Philadelphia. So a large plot of land was donated to the boy and the coffin, headstone and funeral service were donated by the son of the man who originally buried the boy in 1957 in the potter's field. There was a large public and media presence at the reburial and the headstone was engraved with America's unknown child. Locals regularly decorate the grave with flowers and stuffed animals, which I think is absolutely lovely. 
Um, we may never know the boy's identity, and hopefully the investigation by Rayventer comes to fruition and he is identified. But this unfortunately remains a cold case. So yeah, I mean, I find Martha's story very convincing. The only bit that obviously discounts it is the comments from her neighbours, but they could have discounted it for any number of reasons. Hopefully one day it will be figured out and the boy will finally have an identity. Uh, but let me know which theory you guys agree with, or if you have any theories of your own, I'd be really interested to hear about them. But for now, this is it, and I'll see you on another one very soon.